Our text today is the 12th chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects, but the same God, who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all of the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, 
and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. Amen. There is perhaps no Bible passage that gives us a more vivid, compelling description of the mystical union connecting Christ and Christians than the one before us this morning. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part, that is, in Greek, a melos, a bodily member of it. Now, certainly there are plenty of passages that present this doctrine of union with Christ as clearly, but each from a slightly different angle. It is, after all, not an obscure doctrine, not a marginal doctrine. Think of the many New Testament passages that drive home the Christians being crucified with Christ, dying with Christ, being baptized into Christ and into the triune name being raised up with Christ from the dead, being seated with Christ even today in the heavenly places. In every aspect of our lives, every minute of every day, without exception, the Christian is named by and sealed with and caught up in the eternal life and power that belong to Jesus Christ the righteous, Jesus Christ the risen and reigning, Jesus Christ our blessed Lord. And to the extent we hold anything back, to the extent we try to divorce our thought or motive or practice or feeling or relationship from submission to Christ, to that extent we sin. To that extent we fall short of biblical Christianity and the full range of blessings that attend union with Christ by faith. To that extent we grieve the Holy Spirit whose will is that we be one with Christ and together, one in him. Viewed from one vantage point, the more subjective one will call it, because it deals with us and our personal experience, Christianity is life with Christ, life in Christ. But from another equally valid vantage point, the more objective one will say, Christianity is a body of doctrine. It's propositional truth revealed from heaven. It's something to study, something to embrace with the mind and believe. It's the truth about God and man and the world and the relationships in which we live. If we think of Christianity in this more objective way, we can place the doctrine of the believer's union with Christ at the apex, the top of a great theological pyramid, the very top, the high point. 
The central tier of the pyramid is the work of Christ at the cross, where he secured our redemption by that substitutionary atonement which is the very heart of the gospel. And the whole structure rests on the foundation of the sovereign election of God in eternity to save a people, a determinate number of people for his own glory. All of which is simply to give us the big picture of union with Christ and where it fits into Christian doctrine. It's not the starting place of Christian doctrine. And it's certainly nothing we can begin to understand apart from the cross. It is rather the very summit of biblical religion. Every good thing that Christ earned by his obedience to God's law belongs now completely to you, the Christian. Everything you, the Christian, earned by your disobedience, by your rebellion, belongs no longer to you in the slightest degree. Not in the slightest degree. It all belongs only to Christ, the Lamb of God, Christ who took it all and paid for it all at the cross. So when God the omniscient, God the omnipotent judge of all the earth scrutinizes your life and mine in Christ, all of our deeds and all of our misdeeds and all of the faulty motives behind them, when he looks at us, he sees only the finished redemptive work of his own dear son crucified for us. He sees the bill marked paid. And he smiles that radiant smile of love and he says, well done. Now considering these things, I'm sure you will agree that the implications for our living happily ever after are staggering. You can see for miles from a top doctrine like that. But the Corinthian Christians, prone as they were to sinful individualism in a wide assortment of symptoms, they had still another lesson to learn about our union with Christ, and this twelfth chapter of Paul's first letter to them drives that lesson home. The lesson is this. Christ died and was raised again from the dead, not for an unspecified gaggle of isolated individuals who simply believe in their heart the right doctrine. He died and was raised again for a determinate church, a body, one body that has in fact many interrelated members. These members are diverse indeed, but they're members. He doesn't here call us merely people, or individuals, or men, or women, or children. He calls us members of a body. And the body is Christ. Now, why is this significant? Well, many of the Western Christians who need to be reminded of the corporateness of our faith, this is especially true in, in an independently-minded place like Texas, Membership in Christ's church is devalued today, maybe as never before. And who needs it, they'll say. 
Who needs the church? After all, I live away over here, across town, in my own single-family dwelling, paying my own bills. I've got a dozen Bibles, ten different versions in my nightstand at home. I've got shelves full of good evangelical commentaries. I've got internet access. I've got software to learn the Hebrew and Greek if I want to. I've got five church services from which to choose on TV or the internet. And then there's the radio. And if I ever find myself in a real bind and need some personal counsel, or if I ever just get desperate to shake a real human hand or exchange a real human smile, I can always drive down to the RP Church for the occasional fix. Why should I have to take vows of membership and get my name on someone's roster? Why not just camp out on the fringes and get by as a lifelong visitor? The motives behind this kind of thinking, I'd certainly be presumptuous to label. I'm sure it varies with every long-term adherent who never gets around to taking the step of communicant membership. And there is certainly at least a superficial logic to it. There are so many benefits for so little investment. It's just easier to be a visitor than it is to be a member. And it fits so well with the advertised American virtue of rugged individualism. It keeps us, to some degree at least, out of the spotlight of accountability to others. It keeps the excitement of the courtship alive without having to face the mundane commitment of the marriage. Now, this isn't at all to disparage the unattached or secret believer. He may not yet be pursuing membership simply because of a lack of knowledge. Maybe he doesn't yet know it to be the revealed will of God. And whether or not this sermon reaches the hearts of those with less noble motives, whether it reaches the deliberate maverick, at least we can address today the matter of lack of knowledge. Because the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ could scarcely be more clear. So what is the church? The Apostle Paul in his first letter to Timothy, the third chapter and 15th verse, concisely calls the church the household of God, the pillar and support of the truth. So as God's own home, it satisfies our need for shelter, security, and mutual love. As the pillar and support of the truth, it also satisfies our minds. It provides us, through its preaching and teaching of biblical doctrine, a complete arsenal of weaponry by which we can meet the enemy of our souls in the field of daily living and defeat him. Defeat him. Exactly how this is fleshed out in the doing of it is described in the Acts and the letters and the revelation of the New Testament. Time would fail us to try to describe the life of the church through an exposition of every relevant passage. Instead, let's agree if we can that the New Testament gives us a portrait of a church that is at one and the same time a living spirit-animated organism supported by a divinely directed organization. 
Both these aspects of the church, the organism and the organization, appear here in 1 Corinthians 12, as well as other places. The church has life. It also has officers. It has wonderful privileges. It also has duties. It has apostles, prophets, and teachers. It also has those who aren't apostles or prophets or teachers. Membership in the church has a bearing on both its organic and organizational aspects. That is, as members, we participate both in the spiritual life and in the structure of the body of Christ. And we do that in a way that non-members do not. I think you'll see this more clearly as we go on. There are at least six components to the biblical argument for membership in Christ's body, the church. The first of these comes directly from this morning's passage. It's the analogy of a body and its members. You're in something of a bad way when your toe is amputated. But your toe is way worse off than you are. The members of the church are integrated, connected to the head of the church, and in a derivative sense at least, to one another. This is the point of verses 26 and 27. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body, and individually members of it. We need one another, which is the burden of most of the rest of the chapter. We need one another. A non-member of the body doesn't share in the life of the body, though it be placed alongside the body ever so closely for ever so long. If I were to go for days and weeks and months without ever changing my socks... I can guarantee you it won't be very long before they begin to take on some of my personal characteristics. But they won't be me. They won't participate in the circulation of life coursing through my veins in a very rough analogy. It's not uncommon for friends who visit the church for months or years on end to take on some of the hopefully sweeter, more fragrant characteristics of the body. But without the commitment, without the public profession of faith, without the baptism that sets us apart as belonging to Christ and to one another, we fall short of our calling and short of the blessing. The second part of the scriptural argument for membership in the body of Christ is the requirement for a public confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. In Matthew 10.32 in Parallels, we find our Lord Jesus Christ speaking about discipleship, and he says, Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I also will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And John 12, 42 and 43 describes the shame 
of failing to confess Christ publicly. Many rulers of Judaism believed in Jesus. Did you know that? It's true. Even the rulers, many rulers of Judaism believed in Jesus. But, the scripture says, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Confessing Jesus openly before men, whatever the cost, has the open approval of God, doesn't it? It's not uncommon for this to take some dramatic forms, as for instance when confessing Christ costs one his family, or his work, or his wealth, or his life. Somewhere in the world it happens somewhere every day. It always has. In Acts 19.18 we have the record of changes wrought by Christ in the lives of those who confess him publicly. The magicians of Ephesus, now through the preaching of the gospel, converted from the cult of Artemis, converted from their fascination with the secret things of Satan, they pile up their books of the black arts and make a bonfire of them, right under the nose of Artemis. A bonfire costing to the tune of 50,000 drachmas. That is about 150 years wages for a working man. It's the equivalent of the lifetime earnings of three men going up in smoke. That's what the public profession of faith in Christ is worth to these men and women delivered at last from the power of darkness. And of course, Romans 10, verses 6 to 13, leaves no room for doubt about the public nature of the Christian profession. With the heart the Christian believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The first letter of John tells us not only that Christians confess him publicly, it even tells us what we confess of his person and work. Examples abound. Members of Christ, those who share in his life, confess him publicly. A third component to this developing New Testament portrait of membership in the body of Christ, is the evidence of additions to and subtractions from the church. The additions are easy. Read the book of Acts and you'll see how Luke telescopes from specific instances of the grace and power of God in the church. He telescopes out to the many broad summaries, often with numbers to give us a good clear picture of the magnitude of what was going on. Acts 2.41, for instance, describing the effect of the preaching of the gospel on the Jewish crowd. So then those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Six verses later, and the Lord was adding to their number, day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men, let alone the women, the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 
Neither were women left out of the count, Acts 5.14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. A number that someone apparently was keeping track of. Again, examples abound of additions to a number that represented demographics including men, women, Jewish priests, Hebrew widows, Hellenistic widows, Gentiles, jailers, centurions, synagogue presidents, fabric dealers, people with names and faces and public professions of faith and baptisms and needs that the church does its best to meet in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, her risen and exalted Lord. As for the subtractions... They occur through death, as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, or through humanly administered discipline and censure, such as not only Diotrephes faced in 3 John, but also a man well known to these Corinthians, one of her own number, who had his father's wife, and who therefore was ripe for removal. You see in the Acts, one Simon of Samaria who seemed to benefit from censure. And in Second Corinthians, you find a man restored to full fellowship after the exercise of church discipline. The additions are always additions to an already existing number. Subtractions are subtractions from that number. Any accountant will tell you that's how it works. The growth and shepherding of the church is a process that's impossible to calculate or even to conceive of until we understand that one either is or is not a member of the body of Christ, the church. All this evidence is strengthened by the fourth component of the scriptural argument for membership in the body. It's the New Testament evidence of church rosters or roles, or lists. Now I'll agree with you that on the face of it, this sounds boringly unspiritual and administrative. It sounds so Presbyterian that anyone would keep lists of members. But consider again the matter of additions and subtractions and numbers. Consider the frequency of converts mentioned by name. Names that are still remembered and recorded in the Acts sometimes many years after the deaths of those people mentioned. The names continued to mean something to the generations of believers who followed them. Consider, too, the implications for elders under the solemn charge to shepherd the flock of God among them. And the question has to be asked, shepherd whom exactly? Elders have to know. Elders deserve to know. Do elders in the church give an account to God of every soul who visits the church from time to time? How often do visitors need to visit before the elders become accountable to God for their souls? And what about that great shepherd of the sheep, Christ himself? Did he die for an indeterminate number of people? Or for a determinate number? The good shepherd says in John 10, chapter, uh, verse 14, I know my own, 
and my own know me, he calls us each by name. It is a number, and they are names that are known to Christ from eternity and eventually known in time and space history to his body, the church. One either is or is not a member of that body, a citizen of that holy nation, so gloriously redeemed. Consider the illumination that Acts 1.15 sheds on the matter of church roles. Here we have the early disciples giving themselves to prayer in those few days between the ascension of Christ to heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit with power. During those awkward in-between days, it seems needful to deal with that loose end of Judas Iscariot and his defection and death, his suicide. As Luke tells the story, he writes, And in these days, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about a hundred and twenty names was there together. Did you catch that? Where we'd probably expect to find the word psuchai, souls, for instance, or adelphoi, brothers, or something else, we instead find the word onamata, names. This is a gathering of names. It's shorthand, of course, for believers with names. It wasn't just an anonymous crowd of curious onlookers. These are people who belonged there, belonged together. In 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul not only takes for granted that the church in Ephesus keeps church roles, but mentions one specific role, telling Timothy who should and should not be on the list of believing widows qualified to receive church assistance. The cumulative weight of New Testament evidence for a defined church membership with names on a roll is overwhelming. And it's not all found in one place, which is significant. This brings us to the fifth component, component of the biblical case for church membership. It's the evidence throughout Scripture of ecclesiastical development. We read in Genesis that God appeared to Abraham. But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? It's just the beginning of the story. God's appearing to us in the same way he appeared to Abraham isn't the be-all and end-all of Revelation. In fact, in view of all that's happened in the course of the last 4,000 years of church history, we should be very skeptical of anyone today who says God appeared to him. We should think very critically of anyone who wishes to go back in time to an Old Testament way of doing things. We live and operate by the light of the New Testament. A lot's happened since God first appeared to Abraham. Many people are drawn toward a highly customized, highly personalized view of religion that boils down to a me-and-God relationship. It has the feel of New Age intuition, but it's actually been around for as long as people have been coming to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. 
Longer than that, in fact, it's been around for as long as people have been doing what is right in their own eyes. Many people today want essentially to walk in Abraham's sandals, just God and me, me and God. But friends, look in a mirror and then look over at the calendar on the wall. We are not Abraham. Covenant revelation from God hasn't stood still in the intervening centuries. For 4,000 years now, as the generations have come and gone, Abraham's God has refined and specified for us the terms under which we might meet with him. And the numbers of the redeemed become much larger, like the stars of heaven, as this gospel of his Son reaches out to the nations. But the terms, the terms actually become more specific as promises made become promises fulfilled. Here's what I mean. We read in Hebrews 11.21 that Jacob worshipped God, leaning on his staff. That's how he worshipped God. Moses in his day built a tabernacle after the pattern revealed to him on the mountain. Solomon, a temple. Christ, a church, built not of dead, but of living stones upon the foundation of the prophets and apostles. Philippi featured an apostolic church organized under bishops and deacons, according to its opening verse. The pastoral letters of Paul to Timothy and Titus leave little to the imagination as to how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And then when we come to the end of the apostolic revelation of God to his church, What do we find there? Do we find a bunch of saved people scattered abroad, each leaning on his own staff? No, we don't. What we find at the end of Revelation, the end of the Bible, we find organized congregations of the exalted Lord Jesus Christ established in cities, wrestling with Nicolaitans, wrestling with lukewarmness from within, persecutions from without, wrestling with the false prophetess Jezebel, wrestling and wrestling and wrestling and often faltering, sometimes failing, but sometimes not. We contend for the faith once delivered to the saints and sometimes we find that God is pleased to help us overcome by the power and might of the Holy Spirit of Jesus the Christ, who walks among the lampstands. Isn't it clear, beloved, that God's heart is set on something even more grand, more glorious, than the redemption of individual lost sinners? Like the good Father that He is, He looks beyond the birth of new believers into the kingdom of heaven, He looks beyond that to the establishment of his household, the sharing of his inheritance, the bringing of all his family safely together and safely to maturity. He plans for the development of spiritually muscular churchmen. That's a word you don't hear very often these days, is it? Churchmen who love that elect lady destined for radiance, the church for whom Christ laid down his life. 
I'm almost done. A final component of the scriptural argument for church membership is simply this. The relative absence of people on the fringe of the New Testament church. The characters we meet with on the pages of the New Testament tend to fall into one of three categories. Either they're decidedly on the outside causing trouble for the flock of Christ, or they're on the inside as members being a blessing and encouragement to the flock of Christ, or thirdly, there are some who are on the inside causing trouble for the flock of Christ. But they're not staying on the outside as a blessing because the blessing isn't out there. People who are won by grace to Christ don't stay on the fringes for long. The gospel of Jesus Christ crucified either draws them in as an irresistible grace or it drives them away as an intolerable offense. I've been trying to persuade you from the scriptures this morning the combined testimony of the writing apostles is that of a well-defined church of interdependent members. Brothers and sisters within the body of Christ knowing who is of them and who is not. Elders knowing precisely for whom they're accountable. It's a church of baptized believers with a common public profession of faith where members of Christ are exalted head. Living our new resurrection life, not separately but together in the might and power of the Holy Spirit. Others are on the outside, and they know they're on the outside, even as we pray and work to bring them in by the preaching of the gospel. Well, you may say, this man's been up there talking a long time, so what? Here's the so what. If you're a church member somewhere, value that membership, exercise it, understand what it means. You're not just another cardholder of another earthbound organization like the VFW or the Scouts or the Bird and Garden Club. If you are a member of the church, you are a vital, gifted, irreplaceable member of Christ's body on earth. That's what you are. If you're a member of the church. And if you're not a member... I hope I've given you some food for thought and introspection. I hope you'll be asking yourself, why am I not yet a member? Why haven't I ever gotten around to taking this step of living faith and commitment? What's the sticking point? Am I not convinced from Scripture of the will of God in the matter? Do I think that I can succeed in the long run as an interloper, imagining that I can enjoy as a third party the love of Christ that he's pledged exclusively to his bride, the church? May today be a new day in your thinking. May your hunger and thirst after righteousness lead you home 
to the household of faith and to your portion with us. Take some time, beloved, and pray and act and confessing faith in Christ alone, may he soon add you to the number of those who are being saved. To you be all that grace and to him all the glory. Amen.